Welcome to Stuff from the Science Lab from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey guys, and welcome to the podcast. This is Alice Mattermouth, the science editor at HowStuffWorks.com. And this is Robert Lamb, science writer at HowStuffWorks.com. And today we're going to talk about a couple of experiments that have perhaps changed the world. Yeah, these are pretty uh, pretty big ones. Yeah, so worldwide, billions and billions of dollars are earmarked for scientific research and development. I looked this up. Turns out in 2009, the United States government allotted $114 billion just for research and development awarded to its agencies. So the various government agencies, as you can oh, imagine. I think that the dude in the Riddler costume on those uh, infomercials told me this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, a lot of that money went to the Department of Defense, as you might yeah. have. Always helps if you can kill somebody with your science experiment. No doubt. And then a little less than half of that was split between basic research, so the kind that's driven by scientific curiosity or interest in a particular scientific question, and then applied research, the kind of research that's designed to solve practical problems, right? Yeah, like some of the, some of the stuff that goes on is just really cool. Like um, I was doing a news article uh, several months back about uh, research into how hammerhead sharks see. Okay. And the U.S. government was uh, flipping the bill for a lot of that, and I have yet to come up with a way that that could be used to kill somebody or really do anything other than ex- understand hammerheads. Right. So I was bringing up those numbers just to illustrate how many experiments are going on right now, a lot of which we will never, ever know about, a lot of which won't get picked up in the New England Journal of Medicine. So we decided to highlight a few that particularly stand out. So we're doing a series, a two-part series, in which we highlight a couple of our favorite experiments. With the big guns here, we're talking... Yeah, our first one's uh, Darwin. Yeah, and I should mention, in a few instances, we're going to talk about two closely related experiments as opposed to one single experiment, just mm-hmm. because, as you guys know, science stands on the shoulder of giants. Yeah. So it's hard to sometimes separate out who did what when. And sometimes it's like a short person standing on the shoulder of a giant, and then there's another giant standing on top of the short person. <laughs> but if you took the short person out of the mix, then it all falls apart. It's That's like true. Jenga. That's true. Feet. Yeah. Except Jenga with giants. Yeah. Right. So who's the first nominee? Charles Darwin. All right. Let's talk about Darwin. Darwin's flowers. Um, Don't you mean Darwin's Galapagos Islands trip? Um, no, you don't. No, you mean flowers. No, that was, uh, this is, this kind of came later. Yeah. Because the Galapagos Islands trip is famous because, you know, he was always looking at birds and, and he, you know, really putting together, you know, all the, the, the data that would, uh, lead to origin of species. And, uh, but, uh, but after all that, you know, it's like the, the, the theory's out there. And it's, you know, not popular with everybody. It still needs a lot of support. And he has his supporters, but there's also plenty of people just like making fun of him and drawing really mean cartoons. It was divisive. Yeah. Yeah. He was, he was of a divisive, uh, character for sure. And he didn't want to be actually. No, he hated it. We, we have a, I think a really good article on the man. Conveniently, uh, you wrote yeah, it. I, I wrote that one. Um, but so no, it- he was having to, he was, he retreated from the public, uh, I and uh, let other people handle the PR stuff, and he went back to experiments. The Smart stuff move, he loved. Darwin. Yeah. So what did he do? Well, he started looking into um, orchids and uh, and their pollinators. So he's looking to reinforce his theory of natural selection, right? Because this boils down to um, uh, you know, you, know you, you look at uh, at some of the crazy like orchids and flowers out there, mm-hmm. and and there'll be just be some. There's such a variety of design um, in them. And then somewhere out there in the world, there's a, there's an insect that's, that's, that's custom evolved to pollinate that one particular flower. 
Right. That was his thought. Yeah, that was that was his thought. So he started like, you know, if he were around today, he'd make a spreadsheet of this, you know, like which (laughs) which flowers line up with which pollinators. Right. Take the star of Bethlehem orchid, for example. Um, It's an orchid that stores nectar near the bottom of a tube up to 12 inches long. So Darwin saw this design, and he predicted that there was a matching animal out yeah, there. Yeah, somewhere out there in the world, there's there's one insect that's made to, to take care of this. So sure enough, in 1903, scientists discovered that the hawk moth sported a long proboscis, or nose, essentially, uniquely suited to reach the bottom of this particular orchid's nectar tube. So this was good because... Again, it was providing evidence uh, for his theory of natural selection. Um, you know, it's giving credence to on the origin of species and just generally bolstering the modern framework of evolution as we know it with flowers. Yeah. So let's do another biology one. Let's talk about DNA. Oh, yeah. This is a big one as well. Watson and Crick, right? Yeah. Well, Watson and Crick get all the headlines. And lots of school kids certainly know James Watson and Francis Crick as the guys who unlock the mystery of DNA. But there are a whole lot of other players involved in the mix. So that 1962 Nobel Prize in medicine was split among Watson Crick and Maurice Hugh Wilkins. These are the guys who figured out the molecular structure of DNA, along with the help of more than a few scientists, like... Hershey and Chase? Right. So back in 1952, Alfred Hershey and Martha Chase were conducting this now famous blender experiment that identified DNA as the molecule responsible for heredity. Hmm. Let's... No small feat. And Hershey and Chase's research prompted a bunch of scientists to decipher DNA's molecular structure. Like, it was just like the scientific sort of gold rush. Instead of focusing on gold, they were focusing on deoxyribonucleic acid. Hmm. I, I like to think that each duo of scientists was like, like a cop duo, where one was the good cop and one was the bad cop. So, like, Watson and Crick, or like, like one's taking the strong arm with the DNA and the other's like bringing up coffee. <laughs> Did you ever see the TV movie about this? The Race for the Double Helix, a.k.a. Life Story? No. Who I think it was, a, it was a BBC production. And okay. I'm surprised you have not seen it because Jeff Goldblum was in it. Whoa, really? Oh, man, I bet he's he's awesome and a little crazy in it. Yeah, I, I forget which one he was, Watson or Crick. But I must have seen that back in the day because whenever I think of DNA and stuff, I always think of Goldblum, and I could never think why, and now I know. it was. Are you sure you weren't movie. thinking about... The, the fly, fly where because there's a lot of DNA stuff in there. Right, right. Yeah. The fly and the race for the double helix. That, have... That's the movie I base my understanding of DNA on. <laughs> so prize winner Wilkins, along with his colleague Rosalind Franklin, who did not win the DNA Nobel Prize, which is a whole separate but interesting story, used this technique called X-ray diffraction to study DNA. And we're going to talk about this technique a little later on, too, with you, Robert, right? Yeah. So the technique basically involves shooting X-rays at... In this case, aligned fibers of purified DNA. Yeah, the idea is when X-rays travel through something, they're they going to co- get diffracted. Yeah, or they bent, come out right? the other side, but they get diffracted. They get moved around, and all then there's an, they can tell you what it just passed through. It's kind of like when you in a, in a very this is a very broad example, but it's like when you get an X-ray made of your tooth. The you know at the dentist office um, or in a back alley, you know, but uh, the. Um, the x-rays pass through your teeth and and onto that little film right mm-hmm. so and, and then they they uh, give you information yeah, about what's give going you information on your mouth. about what happened yeah between Eight cavities exactly yeah so yeah in this case the diffracted x-rays form a pattern that's unique to the molecule in question and in this case it was dna and so rosalind franklin's now famous photo of dna shows this x-shaped pattern 
Of course, you have to know how to interpret that pattern to quote-unquote see the molecule, and Watson and Crick did. So Watson and Crick knew that the photo represented the signature of a helical molecule, and they also figured out the width of the helix by analyzing Franklin's image, and DNA was somewhat decoded. Yeah, the rest is history, and we have the image of the double helix everywhere. And we fully understand everything that DNA can do now, right? Yeah, yeah, we got it. We got it licked. Got it down. So let's look at another world-changing biology-type experiment that we like. Oh, yeah, yeah. This one, uh, this one's really cool. And this one has to do with vaccinations, um, and the eradication of smallpox. Okay. Right. So until recently, smallpox was a pretty serious public health problem. All right. So then this, uh, there was this British uh, physician by the name of Edward Jenner. And, uh, around 1796, he started, uh, noticing that, uh, dairymaids would catch, uh, something called cowpox. What is Jenner doing noticing the dairymaids is one question. Well, they're, Probably pretty cute. Yeah, they're pretty cute, cute gals. And, and they were, they were catching some sort of, uh, pox from this, uh, this cowpox from the cows. And, uh, and, you know, they suffer through that. But then after they've had cowpox, they're immune to smallpox. Really? Yeah. So we started studying this phenomenon, hanging out with more and more dairymaids. <laughs> you know, cowpox is still around. So is beaverpox. I've not heard of beaverpox. <laughs> I just made that one up. I'm kidding. There's no beaverpox. So uh, eventually, Jenner decided to see if he could um, if he could uh, transfer immunity to smallpox by infecting someone with cowpox on purpose. So he found uh, this little boy by the name of uh, James Phipps. Okay, what did James Phipps' parents make of this? By the way, those were kind of the good old days of human experimentation. Yeah, because I mean, <laughs> it gets kind of grim because the the way he decided to. Um, to, to uh, essentially vaccinate him, uh, though he didn't really know if it was going to work. Uh, you know, it was still an experimental phase. Was he made cuts on the boy's arms and then inserted some fluid from the cowpox source uh, of a local dairy maid that he was hanging out with, uh, named Sarah. Sarah Nelms. Yeah. And so the kid uh, contracted cowpox, uh, then recovered, and was then immune to smallpox. Right. So 48 days later, Jenner said, "Okay, you had your." cowpox cuts let's see what you're going to do with smallpox and sure enough he exposed him and he found out that the boy was immune proving Jenner's theory correct fast forward uh, a little while and uh, there's no more you know uh, and then you have a a powerful smallpox uh, vaccine going on so pretty cool yeah so let's tackle a little chemistry although the scientist at the center of our next experiment considered himself a physicist not a chemist he's the man who once said have you heard this quote all science is either physics or stamp collecting. And he was talking about the scientific method, I assume. Oh, I had not heard that quote. So the man in question is Ernest Rutherford, and he's a pretty amazing guy. He was born in New Zealand. He was one of 12 children. That's a large, large New Zealand family, or any family, I suppose. <laughs> he's the guy who came up with... Listen to this. He's the guy who came up with the principles of alpha, beta, and gamma rays, the proton, the neutron, half-life, and daughter atoms. Wow. One guy came up with all that. He was on quite a roll. Yeah. I've heard him called the father of nuclear physics, and that seems appropriate enough. And future biggies like Niels Bohr, Oppenheimer, and James Chadwick all look to him for guidance. But we're going to talk about one of his adventures with the atomic nucleus and revealing the structure of the atom. So let's talk about the what Rutherford was doing. Basically, he was carrying off a, a kind of a simple uh, experiment, and uh, and one that you can... Uh, you can uh, you can reproduce at home. All you need is what a you need an alpha ray emitter or some sort of like alpha ray gun, right? You need some uh, gold foil. Yeah, and you need a scintillator. Oh, what's that? 
Well, a scintillator is uh, essentially, back in the day, it was a screen coated with zinc sulfide. And it helps you to figure out where the particles were going after you fired them, after you, after you fired them. Okay, well, that may be a little hard to get a hold off, but yeah, perhaps. still, these are the, the main elements of the experiment. So let's talk about the experiment. It was also called the Geiger-Marsden experiment, named okay. after Hans Geiger, yeah, the Geiger gold, gold foil experiment, though, sounds a little snazzier. Yeah, it does. So here's what they did. They got a source of radioactive particles, like Robert was just alluding to. They fired them through these really thin foils, like gold, and by thin, we mean one or two atoms thick. So yeah. super, super, super thin. And they encircled their whole setup with the aforementioned detecting screen, the scintillator, the screen that was going to tell them where the particles were going after they fired them. So what Rutherford and co. figured out was that most of the radioactive particles were actually firing straight through the foil. Okay, that makes sense. And then a few of the particles were being deflected at a, at a smaller angle, and then a very tiny portion of the particles were being reflected back at a large angle. And like we were saying earlier, um, the deflection tells us that there's something going on inside the material that they're, that they're passing through. Right. So Rutherford, Geiger, and Marsden took that to mean that there was a lot of quote-unquote empty space in atoms, allowing all those radioactive particles to pass straight through to the particle screen or to mm. the, the scintillator. But it was the sharp deflections that intrigued them the most. And so their conclusion was that there was a strong positive charge at the heart of the gold atoms that was deflecting those particles almost straight back toward the source. And he called this strong positive source that was doing the deflection the nucleus. And he said the nucleus must be small compared to the atom's overall size. Otherwise, more you would have had more particles bouncing back, right? So, yeah, so he basically mapped the inside of the atom. So today we still visualize the atom as Rutherford did, a small, positively charged nucleus surrounded by a vast, sparsely populated region with a couple of electrons. Wow. So you can you can really tell a lot about something by firing some radiation through it. It's such a simple experiment, but it's so brilliant. It is brilliant. Right. So we mentioned X-ray diffraction a little bit earlier when we were talking about DNA. We were talking about Rosalind Franklin and her X-ray diffraction studies, but... As we pointed out, her work owed a lot to Dorothy Crowfoot Hodgkin. She was one of only three women ever to win the Nobel Prize in chemistry. And in 1945, Hodgkin was pretty darn good at X-ray diffraction. So it's not really surprising that she eventually revealed the structure of pretty much one of medicine's most important chemicals. Penicillin. Indeed. So back in 1928, Alexander Fleming had discovered the bacteria-killing substance, but Scientists had a really hard time purifying the chemical in order to develop an effective treatment. So what Hodgkin did was she mapped out the 3D arrangement of pen- penicillin's atoms. And essentially, she opened all these new avenues for creating and developing semi-synthetic derivatives of penicillin. Yeah, it's like when hackers like break the code for something like DVD encryption, you know, so that they can rip it. It's like, like here was something that was really important to us, penicillin, and in fact, she allowed us to crack it. Right, to right. do more with it. Right, but telling us all that stuff about the molecular structure, she helped out a lot. And in this case, what she did was, after two different companies sent her penicillin crystals, Hodgkin passed those x-ray waves through the crystals and allowed the radiation to strike this photographic plate. We, we did cover this a little bit before. So as the x-rays interacted with the electrons in the sample, they diffract. And reveals the inner structure. Right. Excellent. And then she went on to uh, deal with other uh, structures, right? Like vi- vitamin B12? She did. She did. Yeah. And penicillin was the big one. Yeah, penicillin was indeed the big one. And of course, she uh, she won the Nobel Prize in Chemistry unshared in 1964, which is a big deal. Usually there are a couple selfish. scientists. Selfish. Yeah. I don't know about that. 
So wow, those are so, those are some world changing experiments right there. And I feel a little changed just talking about them. I feel inspired. Yeah, I'm gonna, I hope there are some world changing experiments going on right now. I'm going to fire some radiation through some stuff just to see what's <laughs> going on. When you get back to your desk. Yeah. Yeah. Good what's stuff. going on in that cup of coffee? Well, the thing is, if you're inspired by our world changing experiments, be sure to listen to part two because we got more of these coming up. Mm-hmm. And um, and there's going to be less radiation passing through things in that one. So if you weren't <laughs> as into that in this this podcast, uh, then there's going to be less next time. Yeah, we're going to get into some cool stuff like determining the speed of light. Yeah, primordial soup, dueling all dogs, all sorts of good stuff. Right. So if you want to go to the homepage and look up some cool experiments in the meantime, just type in science experiments and you'll get 10 science experiments that change the world. Also, uh, check out our blog where we uh, update you on all sorts of cool things uh, going on uh, involving, say, the world of energy. And, uh, and hey, Twitter, Facebook, we're on there as well. Lab stuff on Twitter, lab stuff or stuff in the science lab on Facebook. If you guys want to talk science, we're there for you. Yes, sign up, um, add us, interact with us. That's where or we are. Or send us an email at sciencestuff at howstuffworks.com. Thanks for listening, guys. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Want more HowStuffWorks? Check out our blogs on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. <laughs>